What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ladies Let's Talk About Sex podcast. I'm your host, Felicia, and I'm a lady talking about sex. This week, we have a very interesting and unique episode, and I'm actually really excited to introduce you the author of Diagnosing Desire. Allison, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me, Felicia. Uh, so my name is, uh, is Dr. Allison K. Spurgis, um, and I'm the author of Diagnosing Desire, Biopolitics and Femininity into the 21st Century, uh, which just came out on Ohio State University Press um, in October 2020. Congratulations. That's super exciting. I would love to know kind of like a little bit about who you are and what your practice is and kind of like what your education is and what how this book kind of came to be. Sure. Yeah. So uh, so I am, oh, I, I should say that my pronouns are they and she, um, I should say that for sure. Um, and so I'm a, I'm a sociologist. My training is, uh, is in sociology and gender and sexuality studies. Um, so I, I majored in sociology as an undergrad. I then did my master's um, and then I got my PhD um, in New York City, which is where I am right now. I'm in Brooklyn. And um, so the book kind of came about because I've just, you know, I've been studying gender and sexuality for a long time um, as a sociologist. I've always been really interested in kind of going beyond just biological or psychological explanations to really think about how socialization, how traumatic experiences do influence our sexualities and our desire. Um, And so the book really came about when I was doing my graduate work um, and I started to come across just like a lot of articles Um, in the popular media that talked about women's like responsive or receptive desire. And I felt kind of weird about those articles. I I was just surprised to see that women's sexuality and desire was still being described as responsive and receptive um, in the early 21st century. Um, And this was all kind of also right when the the DSM-5 was about to come out. So the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So I was really interested in how the the desire, like the low desire diagnoses were shifting and changing, Um, especially kind of in the wake of, you know, like Viagra's rise um, for the treatment of like men's sexual problems and then how women's sexual problems were being framed kind of like kind of in the aftermath of all of that. Um, so that's really what the book, what the book is about is just how, how it's actually about kind of how, how sexologists and sex researchers understand women's sexuality and desire um, and the ways in which Sometimes I argue there could be more of a kind of sociological analysis brought into some of that work. That's amazing. No, and I, even in my findings, I always, when I'm doing research, when I'm looking and even just like historically, like women are always passing, like passing creatures in any sort of like sexual, even just like any, like if you look at like gynecology and just like the way they did research there, like women didn't even give consent. So it's just like, they're always like an afterthought. Um, So it's really interesting how present that still is in like our understandings. Um, But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I totally agree. 
how, how were you first, like beyond kind of like the articles and stuff, did you have an understanding like prior to your education about um, women's sexual desires and maybe some of the dysfunctions? Like, did you have any like predispositioned understandings or concepts of that before you kind of started actually doing research? Um, well, I think just kind of like being like raised and socialized as a woman in the world, right? Like as a little girl, um, I noticed that just, I mean, little boys and little girls are treated so differently, right? Like we're like little boys are encouraged to be aggressive and kind of spontaneous in all aspects. Um, and women like young girls are just kind of expected to be more passive and responsive. Um, and I think that ends up translating into how we are sexually, you know, at young ages. So I think that like from a very young age, too many young girls just start to understand themselves as like kind of as non-sexual creatures, like as like kind of like how you're putting it, like um, that. And then also kind of as like service providers. So like, it's like you do this thing for this boy or man, or I mean, I, the book I even get into like different kinds of like care work and like what I call like effective labor that you might even like like just being expected to like I don't know hug your male relatives or like sit on their laps and stuff like stuff that we don't really talk about you know as much but that does affect young people you know and especially people who are socialized as little girls um so yeah I just think that we're kind of expected to to do that from a young age um that certainly affected my own sexuality and desire um, and then when I was in grad school, I just started studying just um, I'm, I'm really interested in sociology of medicine um, and kind of the medical aspects of um, of studying gender and sexuality. And so, you know, I've I was looking at like, I mean, early like Freud, like everything from like early sexologists and Freud, you know, through the 20th century. And I just think that even though science had changed so much and has been changing and continues to change that certain ideas about women just kind of stayed the same. Um, and that's really what drew me to the work is that I was just like, why is, why is this still the story? You know, if like we have more feminist psychology and, you know, more feminist sexologists and researchers, why are we still seeing articles about like women's mysterious desire, like complicated, like, you know, and, and I just think that, like that often, like it ends up being kind of framed in like more biological terms. Like it's like women are just like biologically mysterious or complicated. Um, you know, how, how do those ideas just impact us? You know, how does that happen? And um, uh, yeah, so that's just, that's really kind of like, I feel like I lost my train of thought for a second there. Um, no, that's, it's so great. And I, I even think back to like, we are in this like very sex positive era and life and, you know, but I also think that people in the field do kind of get a little bit lost in like, even myself, like I, I'm very much with a lot of like left wing sex positive folks, but then I, I hear stories from young girls about like how they're taught about like having sex for the first time, especially young girls who are having sex with boys, how, how that, that even just is narrated to them. Like you're going to go, you're not going to like it. It's not going to be great, but like once you do it like five or six times, then it'll get better. And it's just like, you are just a 
a vessel at that point. Like there is no, there are no action words there. There are no like, and it's not even like presented in a positive light either, even though a lot of women, most folks in general enjoy sex. So I I really am interested to like dig deeper into this because I know that a lot of women are sometimes misdiagnosed with like low sexual desire um, illnesses or, you know, sometimes it's just, there's a lot of like understandings that are just like falsified and they're perpetuated within like some medical communities, unfortunately. So why do you think that low sexual desires are often diagnosed as illnesses in folks? Well, so, so there's a lot there. So, so first of all, I mean, I definitely think that the pharmaceutical industry has definitely like is, has profited right off of, off of various sexual problems. And so we know that like that Viagra was this hugely successful thing that was targeted to, to cis men. Um, and so, uh, so other authors, I don't focus as much on this, but so other authors have written about um, the history of this kind of what they call like the invention of female sexual dysfunction. And the idea that like in the kind of first decade of the 21st century, that like there were all of these different pharmaceutical things attempted, you know, to be developed and targeted to women. Um, and kind of like none of them worked, which I think is part of why women continue to be framed as like elusive and mysterious and kind of like complicated. Um, but then, so ultimately what was kind of arrived on was um, phlebanterin or what's called brand name Addy today, um, which, you know, was, it had a really hard time passing FDA approval, but then eventually in the United States was passed um, you know, and is on the market today. It's, it's been like very unsuccessful um, for the most part, <laughs> but it, it's actually, it's really different from Viagra. So it's like, it's actually, it's kind of an antidepressant. It's a neurotransmitter drug. Um, it affects the brain. So, but so basically like, it's not like if, if there's ever, if it's, if, if that drug is ever referred to as like the pink Viagra or female Viagra, it's not because it doesn't do the same things, you know, whereas Viagra just like affects a penis's erection. Um, that's not what the kind of like female equivalent drug does. So, so short answer, I mean, so definitely like the pharmaceutical companies, just, we live in a capitalist society, right? So there's like a profiteering motive for sure. Um, but then I actually think that, that one thing that's interesting, um, that I track in my book is that, women are expected to have kind of either like low sexual desire or like a really different desire pattern um, from men. So I think that like, there's a way that some of our most recent discourses, including like in the DSM, um, including in something I talk about in my book, which is called the circular sexual response cycle, that was kind of originally developed um, for women to describe women's experiences, this idea I mean, kind of almost what you were saying, like this idea that you're like, you're not really going to like it at first. Like you might be sexually neutral, but like, you know, eventually you'll get into it if you just keep doing it, you know, even in like one given encounter, which is weird, right? It sounds kind of like rapey, like it doesn't sound great for women, right? Um, So I think that there's a way that, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that there's a way that um, the idea that women's desire is just different, like it's more receptive or responsive is built in to the new medical and scientific and scientific discourses. Um, 
And it, initially that was done to try to like depathologize women's so-called low desire. So the idea is that it's really just different. But my argument is that kind of opens up space for a whole, a whole host of other problems, right? Is that, okay, so now we don't just assume that women have a low desire, but we assume that it's like really different and it's receptive and responsive. And, and then in a heteronormative kind of rape culture that we live in, that that can be really misconstrued including by women themselves and including by their partners, you know, in some cases who are, who are cis men. So that's kind of my concern. I guess that's kind of a roundabout <laughs> kind of thing, a way of talking about the illness, but, but illness here is, is really complicated. I think because it's not as simple, I, I guess it's because it's just, no, not, it's kind of not as simple as saying, well, women are a pathologist for having low desire. It's there's like, so there's so much there about this receptivity and responsiveness and, um, but the point is that men and women are still just conceived of as like totally different, these like different sexual creatures. No, absolutely. And I really like kind of your lens on it because so many women and just like vulva owners come to me and they're like, do I need to do this to my vagina? Do I need to do that to my vulva? Is this the right way? Am I having sex correctly? Or like, why don't I like this? Or why do I like that? And it's just... It's not a one size fits all, but I love the like cultural and socio lens that you're putting to it because we do live in this capitalist society where your vagina is supposed to smell like flowers. And then there's also all these medications that you're supposed to take to make you, you know, I don't know whether it makes you like have higher sexual desire or like all of the like BS when you have like UTIs and yeast infections that like they just sell to you. It's just like it's a marketing game and then also we're socialized to be these like aesthetic looking creatures that are just to please men and like you know we're passive in sex and we're not taught to want to explore it or want to enjoy it so I think that that is like really great and I I also it's my I think I'll die saying this but it's just like we have a clitoris and it's like everybody (laughs) seems to forget that we do and it's just, it's, it's, it like baffles my mind because it's like, if we're going to compare <laughs> organs, like for sexual pleasure, like females are just like on a different level, but because we can't physically see the like clitoris expand and the clitoris just like essentially become similar to like an erect penis, it's like, mm-hmm. it doesn't exist. So I'm really interested because a lot of the conversations that I've been having as of recently kind of deal with like the ambiguity that you were talking about in relation to like women having sex with most likely cis men and this like cycle that kind of provides like a lot of gray area within those interactions. So I'm kind of interested, can you expand a little bit more on that cycle that you were discussing? Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit more as to like how that translates to yeah, sexual Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it, so in the early, the very early 21st century, like right around 2000, um, some researchers, actually Canadian, like so, so like there's uh, a woman named Rosemary Bazan in um, Vancouver came up with this cycle called the circular sexual response cycle. Um, and she has since said that, you know, this could also apply to men, but at the time the research was all done with women and it was 
kind of this idea again that like that women have this like kind of arousal it was actually called in certain instances like arousal first or like trigger based so basically the idea that like women don't have that kind of spontaneous desire that men do but that like if they are like if they're sufficiently aroused you know and in some cases that might even be because they have some kind of other incentive like they want to promote like relational harmony or they want to make their partner happy you know like whatever it is um that they can like get in the mood right so and and I don't think that there was any like ill intent meant in that model when it was first designed but I do think that it kind of ends up playing into these tropes about like kind of like a sleeping beauty model of women's sexuality that needs to be like awoken and I think that it has been really misinterpreted or like promoted differently like in the media we've seen like articles in the last 10 15 20 years that are like that are like, um, I don't know, like women have this triggerable desire. And then in the comment section, you know, some guy will be like, well, if they need to be triggered, then how far do I go to, to make sure they get triggered, you know? So it does, it raises issues for consent. You know, I think it raises some pretty serious mm-hmm. concerns. Um, you know, again, not because I think the scientists who designed this stuff had any kind of ill intent, but because of the culture that we live in. Um, so yeah, I think there is like a real, like, and I think even like women themselves are like, well, I guess I have this triggerable desire. I guess I should just like wait for it to kick into gear. And sometimes that might be okay, you know, in a really consensual, healthy relationship. But if you're not in that, then you could be in a, you could be in a dangerous situation. Right. And I did actually talk to some women who, you know, who, who had been, for instance, even treated for various sexual problems, even low desire, and talked about how they were like taught about this cycle. And they felt kind of weird about it, right? Like they were like, I wasn't in a great relationship. And I don't want to think of my desire as responsive and receptive to this man, because that isn't good for me. And that's not healthy. And it could put me in a dangerous situation. You know, if also if he thinks, if he thinks that too, right? So so yeah, I just think that it's, um, my concern is, yeah, that it sets people up to kind of misconstrue things or be in potentially dangerous situations or non-consensual um, exchanges. And I also think something you said earlier, you talked about vulva owners. And I think this is super important because it also assumes that people with certain body parts are like identify in the ways that we expect with those body parts, right. As a culture. So it assumes that the people we're talking about are cis women who are like more receptive and responsive and emotional and that they're partnered to cis men who are like spontaneous and have erections and want to have sex all the time. And it's a disservice to, to everyone, (laughs) right. Because not all people with vulvas and clitorises identify as cis women and not all people with what we call penises identify as cis men. Right. And there's all kinds of different beautiful, amazing bodies, you know, with different people wanting to do different things. And this is just such a cis heteronormative idea about sex. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And kind of looking more into kind of like these perceptions and these studies, because I do think that like, I think that all of like, 
I appreciate a lot of the science and I think that it's very, very important. Um, and I think it gets us a little bit further, but I do think that when we make it available to like Joe Schmo on the road, he's going to put his own toxic lens on, okay, what does this do? How can I, you know, get whatever I need to get out of this person or this woman? So yeah, I, I agree that it, it definitely like within the society that we live in and like the different perpetuations of like internalized misogyny and like just like really toxic rape culture like can just take all of these things and turn it into something that it wasn't intended to be but I'm really curious about how diagnosing desire kind of made the correlation between these understandings of femme bodies and vulva owners and how that correlates to sexual trauma how it made the correlation um meaning just kind of methodologically like in the book like how did I like yeah like how did you come to understand that like these I mean obviously when you're looking at like a submissive character or like a submissive person then obviously they're going to be a little bit more vulnerable especially in like a sexual interaction so like how do you think that these understandings of women have translated to either being more vulnerable in sexual experiences and then having experienced sexual trauma because of this understanding or this social connotation or like, where's the tie essentially for people who like are still not well, sure. So, I mean, in my study, I, you know, I did, um, I did just kind of like discursive and textual analyses of, of all of this kind of historical and contemporary scientific research. You know, I looked at things like the new DSM five. I looked at this, this circular sexual response cycle and all the articles that kind of support that model. Um, I looked at popular stories about this and how it's framed in the media and the comment sections, you know, you never want to read the comments because that's where you read the, you know, the misogynists. Um, But then I also did interview, I interviewed women. And so I opened up the study to just I just said, are you, and I did, I kept it to women. I didn't say cis women. I just said, are you a woman who has low desire? Because I wanted to specifically look at like how this, these ideas about female sexual dysfunction and low desire um, have affected, you know, um, specifically women and femmes. And um, it just so happened that it was all cis women who at least at the time identified as cis women um, although I do from my understanding and I haven't done follow-up um, interviews, but I think some of those folks have transitioned to, um, potentially to more non-binary identities um, and p- perhaps, you know, um, no longer identify as women at all. But at the time they all went by she, her pronouns and were and identified as cis. Um, and then just kind of what I found by way of the research was that also the majority of those individuals had at some point identified as straight or had like, you know, a heterosexual kind of past. And then they also, almost all of them had experienced something that they identified as, as, as sexual trauma and or, and or gender trauma. Like, and it just, it just so happened. Like I didn't specify in the like interview call that like anybody had had to have that kind of experience, but they just had. You know, and that could speak to just the prevalence of that. Um, you know, I but it also I think to me it also does speak to the idea that a lot of like feminized people 
regardless of how they ultimately like identify in terms of gender, people who are feminized, like treated as femme, feminized people um, have experienced this, these kinds of violences, you know, and it ranged from like overt childhood sexual abuse to sexual harassment, to just like street harassment, you know, all kinds of different things. But they described these, um, these different things they've been exposed to and how that has complicated their ability to, to be sexual, you know, and to feel good about that and to have like enthusiastic encounters. Um, you know, and for some of them, it was, you know, like some of, for some of them, the low desire stuff was more just like, it kind of came out that they weren't in a great relationship that they had, that they had had a sexual, a sexually traumatic history. Um, some of them had kind of like a, a really like great queer fantasy life that they felt like they hadn't been able to fully access. Um, you know, again, not necessarily because their partners like wouldn't be into different things, but just because like men and women are expected to be certain kinds of people in bed. Um, and so it like some of their, some of their like deepest desires had kind of been precluded. And so, but so what I argue is that if we are all taught that like women are receptive and responsive and they're kind of mysterious and complicated creatures that we're all going to internalize that in different ways, including people who are raised as women. Um, and that that's going to affect our sex lives, you know? And then, so, and then even worse, like if you are someone who wants to maybe, who is drawn to be experimental, who maybe wants to like even incorporate BDSM into your sex life, that the kind of that baseline, like rape culture that has made it into all these different places in our society, even unfortunately into some of the scientific narratives or at least how they're interpreted, then it makes it feel more dangerous, right? It makes it feel more dangerous to, um, to ask for what you want in bed and like have, uh, be able to have a really good time. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I, I even think like as of recently, I don't know if you follow pop culture that um, closely, but there was the big thing about Army Hammer being like cannibal like a cannibalist like like cannibalistic things like biting and yeah. cutting toes off and stuff and the bdsm community was like not having it because people were labeling it as like bdsm and they're like no this is not bdsm exactly. bdsm is consensual and we exactly. also don't eat people um <laughs> so don't pretend like we're doing these whack-ass things and like it's just like it's, and then it's part of the narrative. And there's a lot of things with that whole thing with the Army Hammer situation because he's so likable and he's so friendly yeah. looking and he's also white. So like the way the media portrayed a lot of this cannibalistic like fetish, I don't even know. I don't even know what to call it because it's not okay one bit, but it was very, it was very interesting to watch. And then it was also like very interesting to watch because I'm so in the like, sex positive community where I was seeing all of these BDSM companies and organizations coming out and being like, this is not BDSM. Don't label it as it because it's very dangerous because people are going to then mirror and copy kind of these things mm -hmm. and then claim it as something that's sexually okay. But I think that it's, it's really interesting to kind of talk about that, especially when we're looking at like gender and sexual trauma, because, um, one, I think femme people are just like not 
socially, like, it's just not that great to be a woman and to be super sex positive. Like, you're always going to get some sort of weird feedback or some strange DM or email or even, like, my LinkedIn page is always full of weird old men. And I'm like, I do sexual and reproductive, like, Mm -hmm. you know, help. Like, this is my organization. I'm not even on, like, the kink spectrum at all. Um, so I can't imagine what it's like for folks that are super, super open and, and comfortable with themselves, but I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about like how gender and sexual trauma play a role in desire, but maybe like more of the, like, because I think most folks who have experienced like something as severe as like rape or like childhood trauma have to go through like a long invasive process of like reclaiming their sexuality and and having autonomy over their body again and and just changing the narrative and that's like a huge personal um journey that's like different for everyone but I'm kind of curious because like even me as a woman like sexual harassment is kind of just like part of my day-to-day like you never know when you're going to walk out of the house and some man's going to just like whip their dick out or like you're going to get harassed on the street or someone's going to pull up to you like in a car or whatever it may be. I'm kind of curious as to how those like little micro harassments affect women's desires. If you've found any sort of specific correlation or like any kind of understanding of like how that's translated and represented in in desire and sexuality that's a great question yeah I mean I I think that I I think that those little microaggressions and like micro harassment like all of that just everyday everyday trauma um really just really adds up you know right and I think there's I have like all these things in my head right now that I'm thinking about um because I'm also thinking about what you were just saying about the army hammer thing and the fact that he's white so I'm thinking about race here too and so how women of color and non-binary and trans folks of color deal with these issues even more um and actually more of my current research is about thinking about like kind of rethinking feminized trauma through that lens like because part of the issue is like even when I think that like psychologists, like clinical and experimental researchers today, like have the best intentions and they're starting to like study trauma more. And I think that's great. Like I really, I'm super happy to see that. And I hope that we'll see more of that. But I think that there is still a way that trauma is understood to just be like stranger rape or like overt childhood sexual abuse or like incest. And the reality is that so many of us have experienced various, like, even if we have not experienced those specific things, we've experienced unwanted sexual encounters when intoxicated, um, unwanted, exactly what you're describing, just catcalling street interactions, um, all just a range of things, you know, having, starting a sexual encounter and then being like, I don't want to do this, but then still going ahead with it anyway, because the partner's really into it because it's expected. Um, and that's exactly why I worry about this like responsive desire framework, because I'm like, if that's, if scientists are seeing this too, but they're not theorizing the social reasons that it happens and like what the consequences might be, then that could be dangerous again. So yeah. So there's just like a ton to, there's a ton to say here. I just, yeah. But a lot of my participants in the study did talk about 
just the everyday stuff, you know, just like my first kiss was kind of gross and weird because I wasn't asked, you know, because consent wasn't a thing, you know, like just all kinds of stuff like that, you know, like, like, I think just even, yeah, like this, like being like a little, like a young person that's expected to like give male relatives hugs, you know, like all of that stuff, it just adds up over your lifetime. Um, and yeah, and I just think it is kind of unduly put onto femme and femme socialized kind of people. Um, yeah, but the one other thing I wanted to say really quickly though, just because you mentioned the thing about Army Hammer, I, I, I did follow a little bit of that. I don't, I'm gonna do now more research after we finish this. Um, but yeah, I think that the, like, first of all, totally that's not, that's not BDSM, right? And the point is like, we all have different mm-hmm. desires and you can have whatever desire you want. But like, first of all, desire is social, right? Like we know that like it comes from different, like certain desires and um, attitudes toward sex are condoned among some people and not condoned among others, right? So like a white man expressing those things is going to just be read completely differently. Um, and yeah, and like doing stuff like that, like like the idea of consent is the important, right? Like we have to have consent. And if there's not consent and there's not spelled out discussions of safety, then it does not be DSM. It's not the same thing. Um, but yeah, but I think the race stuff here is also really important. And, and so another thing I talk about in the book, although I don't go into this as much as I, as I will in my future research and, and as much as other people have, is the idea that that receptive, responsive femininity is also kind of more expected and reserved for white women. So it's this idea that like white women are receptive and responsive and that's part of like I mean, really, we can link it back to like colonialism and colonialist science and medicine about like civilization projects, the idea that like as, I mean, terrible racist things about how as societies became more civilized, like the sexes would be more differentiated. I mean, really just overtly racist kind of stuff. But, but as we know, like black women, including um, black trans women, BIPOC, non-binary folks, you know, all of these people are not considered to be receptive like it's they're more likely to be framed as hypersexual aggressive um or asexual you know even if they don't identify that way so i think that thinking about the racialization stuff here is going to be really huge for future research and that um all scientists and sociologists and folks moving forward to study are going to have to really take that seriously more than they have more than they have so far No, absolutely. I think that also goes hand in hand with the way we're researching like more queer folk and more like non-binary folk as well. I think that like adding those intersections to the research will definitely give people a better understanding. But I'm I'm actually curious and I'm this is like not at all like entirely what your research is focused on, but do you know a little bit about kind of like because there's a whole, I mean, like we could go on for days in the way that like society understands like black women and especially like black trans women and like kind of how desire plays into them. But is there any, like, I'm trying to frame this correctly, but like any link to like colonial trauma and black women and the way that they experience desire, like, exclusively themselves not the way society perceives them but the way like they now move into 
um, sexual relationships? Or is that more just like, are they just like accompanying like the social norm of like the hypersexual black woman? Like, or is it like, Um, I I mean, I think, I think I know what you're kind of getting at. I I don't feel like I can speak to this as a white researcher. um, But I do think that like, so other people have written about kind of the role of transgenerational trauma. Um, You know, I mean, there's like lots of amazing black feminist theorists who do work on various kind of kinds of things connected. So I mean, I'm thinking of the work of um, people like so like Hortense Spillers and Saidia Hartman who have written on like the ways that black folks are not kind of put into gender categories in the same way within this kind of colonial discourse. Um, And, you know, and specifically like who, who gets to be, who gets to like kind of make a claim to victimhood and the idea that like, black folks and people of color have have less frequently been able to kind of even make claims like within 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 like so-called justice systems that we know are not always just at all um so yeah so I think kind of research on that and then like um I go to the go to the work of like um so uh a researcher named Kyla Schuller did a book called biopolitics of feeling also really thinking about the um how sexual difference discourses are racialized. Um, C. Riley Snorton wrote a book called Black on Both Sides. So there's a lot of like really, really good work on uh, the racist origins of sexology and sex science um, and even the actual material practice of obstetrics and gynecology. So you alluded to that earlier, but just the fact that like literally black women were treated as like a way to experiment in the realm of, of gynecology, you know, like, and that was literally what happened. That was an aspect of like plantation culture, you know, during like American slavery, for instance. So I am not an expert in those areas, but I am trying to draw more and more on that work and, and understand it better. But it's the work of black feminists who are, you know, they're really at the forefront of, of that. So I'm not the person to ask about the trauma specifically, but I mean, I can imagine that historical and cultural traumas and transgenerational traumas affect people in all kinds of really awful ways. I mean, and even in a, not specifically racialized, but just from my own research, I mean, even some of the people I talked to across racial backgrounds would talk about how their mothers, their family members had had their own traumas and they felt and how these, the participants that I spoke with felt influenced and informed by those traumas. Like even if they hadn't explicitly experienced incest, if their mom did, they kind of inherited some of that. So I think, you know, all this stuff gets passed along in all kinds of terrible ways, right? You know, and then also the, um, yeah. And then the portrayal <laughs> like in the, in the media for sure doesn't, doesn't help with any of this either. No, absolutely. And kind of going back to desire, like now that we have this understanding of the way, you know, femme bodies have kind of been conditioned to be these like receptors to sexual encounters, is there a way or some sort of like methodology where we can start unlearning or kind of like healing within ourselves to figure out what our authentic kind of like desire, like 
platform would be? Like, is there a way to kind of unlearn and start figuring out like who you want to be sexually exclusively from like your partners or from what society says? Mm. Like, how do we heal from that? It's such a good question. Um, I mean, so I take this up a little bit at the end of my book. My, my last like full chapter before the conclusion is on BDSM and like thinking about power and play in sex as a, um, as, as really like a different kind of way of thinking about receptivity, like that we can think about like submission in a consensual way as like a, an interesting alternative to the receptivity responsiveness in the science kind of discourse. Um, so I think like allowing a more sex positive culture around those things and like, but of course that would require people really taking seriously power and, you know, and how it gets played out and how that is, really social right like so it's like like uh, other authors who've written about you know these like related issues that I should have cited when I was just speaking a minute ago are people like Jennifer Nash and um, Amber uh, Jamila Musser who write also about um, black women's sexuality so other authors to check out Um, but Amber Musser writes about masochism and how like this idea of masochism is not the same for all populations. I mean, she says a ton more than that, but that's like one of my takeaways. Um, so that it just, it does matter, like race matters and like how people are oriented to these issues really matter. So I, I just think that like we, so that's one thing is just kind of being more open and having real conversations about um, consensual, happy, egalitarian sex um but but not shying away from taboo topics so like taking seriously that people might not want to just be receptive and responsive but might want to like play around with different kinds of kinks or um power stuff um and then but then the other thing I talk about is I think that a lot of the sex therapy um that's most popular today is in the kind of scientific framework of of what we would call behaviorism. It's very like, it's like use CBT, like cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness is a big thing right now. Um, I think that those things have their place and can be helpful, you know, in certain situations, but I also think that they can be too individualistic and can kind of be more like, you just should be mindful. And I also do, I do argue in the book that, that women are more often um, targeted as like, be mindful to have better sex, to like take care of yourself and your relationship and that it becomes a kind of work. Um, So as much as I think that there is totally a place for like mindfulness and CBT and that if people want to use that, they should totally use it. I also think that we need more diverse um, healing and justice frameworks you know, and that part of that will be more open, serious conversations. Um, I do think that having more sociological and trauma-oriented analyses to all of these issues will hope will help to open up that space. Um, but just thinking, yeah, in a more intersectional, a more just, you know, kind of collectivist way about these issues and people supporting each other, I think like, I mean, I'm a sociologist. I study social movements. I want to see social movements, right? I want to see people like supporting each other on the ground. Um, you know, people with more privilege supporting the more marginalized folks, like, you know, and so, and maybe mindfulness and CBT can be a piece of that puzzle, but I think that we need like 
more robust attention that doesn't, that isn't just like a kind of a band-aid to low desire stuff, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I, I feel that a lot sometimes just because I'm in such a sex positive kind of bubble that I know that it's not like this for everyone. And I know that not everybody has like the beautiful team that I have and the community that I have. Um, and even just like these social platforms to like have these open conversations. I know that like some, someone's going to listen to this and like just be like mind blown and not understand how society has greatly like narrated their sexual experiences and even just the way they understand sex. Um, so I, I, I do appreciate that a lot because I think that like a lot of the different like faculties and fields need to kind of come collectively together to figure out how we can have this kind of like overthrow of like what we've been doing so far. Cause obviously yeah. that's <laughs> yeah, and most men. often cis white. So men. yeah. <laughs> so no, I think yeah. you're totally right. I, and, and that's like my book is, um, is, is critical, you know, at various points of the contemporary science, you know, and it's very sociological. So it's very like this, the psychology and the sexology has its limits and we need to do this, you know, kind of differently. But ultimately I understand my own work and in my book as a call for more interdisciplinarity and more conversations, right? Because I'm also part of a world where there's a lot of sex positivity and queer positivity, um, and where I am trying to kind of surround myself by people who are thinking more about, about cis heteropatriarchal, you know, constraints and about whiteness, you know, and like, but I know that is like a lot of people are not, are not on that page. And some people are actively rejecting that. Um, and I don't, I'm, I don't think it's the scientists that are doing that. But I, I think that what we need is like, is the humanities and the people that are like the social scientists and humanities folks who are really in those kind of gender studies, sexuality conversations in communication with psychologists and sex therapists and therapists and um, clinicians and experimental researchers, you know, and, um, and that's what I hope to see, you know, just more like taking social variables, taking trauma, seriously, you know, and really like thinking through because we need each other, right? Like I, I'm, I identify as like more of a social psychology type person. Like I'm a sociologist, but I do a lot of psychological kind of bordering work. Um, so I'm really in conversation. Like I'm regularly thinking about like sexological and psychological work. Um, and I think that a lot of the sex researchers, even some of the ones that I critique in the book, I think are moving a lot closer to thinking about the social in a very serious way. Um, and I'm super excited about that. So yeah, I just hope that we'll see even more of that, like that interdisciplinary dialogue. I, yeah, I agree too. And I, I do think though that like this division has definitely been like perpetuated by like the patriarchy and just like the, the value that we hold on folks who are in like the social sciences and the humanities disciplines. I know that there's like a lot of, even me myself, like taking gender classes in university, it's primarily femme folk um, or femme identifying people. And I feel like that's just a call to the patriarchy saying like, 
if you're not in business, if you're not in STEM, you don't really like have that much to offer society, which then upholds the same bullshit that we're, you know, still living in. But I, I do think that it's a call to start, you know, I, I do think that the psychologists definitely want to have that more yeah. um, intersectional lens. I just don't think that they n- might know 100% how, which I, which is why I think that kind of coming together is going to be the way that we <laughs> dismantle the patriarchy. Uh, <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy you brought that point up because I think it's going to get a lot of people thinking about like how they themselves even interpret different disciplines that might not necessarily be like a priority to our society and how these voices have been kind of shushed down to uphold certain narratives and certain understandings. So I think that that's really important to bring up, especially when we're looking at um, desire and sexuality and, and why these notions have been essentially Mm -hmm. upheld for so long um, and how we can kind of undo and unlearn and, even just like recognize that like maybe your quote unquote desire is like not your, not authentically Mm -hmm. yours. And maybe it's a product of something else or a product of trauma Mm -hmm. or a product of a thousand things at this point. But I'm really glad you came and had this conversation with me for anybody looking to find your book, where can they um, so it, pick it up? So it was published by the Ohio State University Press. Um, it is available through their website. So it's just, I believe it's, I mean, if you just Google the Ohio State University Press, you can definitely find it. Um, uh, my book, again, is called uh, Diagnosing Desire, Biopolitics and Femininity into the 21st Century. Um, it just came out in 2020, uh, this past fall in October. And so you can order it through the website. Um, it's part of the Abnormativities um, series. And uh, you can order it directly through, through the website if you use the promo code DIAGNOSING, so all caps, DIAGNOSING, uh, you can get 30% off the paperback. Um, and I believe it's domestic shipping. It's also free, but uh, I'm assuming only in the US. Um, but so that's, the, that's one way to do it. And then it's also totally available on all of the other websites um you know that you would buy books through so so yeah you can get it there um and then I do have um some social media um, handles and and information there so I'm I'm just um at Allison K Spurgis my full name A-L-Y-S-O-N-K-S-P-U-R-G-A-S um uh on Twitter and then my full name.com. So alisoncaseburgess.com for my website, which is a little bit of a kind of work in progress, but hopefully it'll be uh, running up to speed a little bit more soon. No, thank you for that. We'll make sure to have all of Allison's links in our um, podcast bio and also on our Instagram. But uh, I just want to say thank you so much for having this conversation. Yeah, no, thank you. This was really great. I think that, um, thank you so much, Felicia. I think you all are doing a wonderful thing with this podcast and just super smart, thoughtful, um, very serious approaches to these issues, which we, was what we need. So great job. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you. Oh my God. It was a pleasure. Um, Yeah. So if you want to listen to more episodes of the ladies, let's talk about sex podcast, make sure to tune in every Monday for new episodes 
Thank you again, Allison, for coming on. And if you want to find Allison's socials or her promo code for the book, it'll be on our Instagram at ladies. Let's talk about sex. We'll have everything available there. Thank you. Thanks for listening.